0: with a lot of the Word of God. And there were times in my life as a, as a child and a teenager that I began to try to open up God's Word and read it for myself. But it wasn't until I was 16 years of age when I became born again, when I opened up the Word of God in a fresh new manner, And I didn't turn to the book of Genesis to begin reading the Word of God. I didn't turn to the book of Matthew to begin reading the Word of God as a new believer. I turned to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. And the first book that I read as a new Christian was the final book of the Bible. Of course, many people have, throughout the library of time, labeled their views and opinions of this interesting and somewhat intimidating book. But I want you to understand this, that a lot of people label the last book of the Bible as the hardest book to understand. But as I've been getting better acquainted with God's Word these last several years, I've come to understand that Revelation is not the hardest book to understand. In fact, if you just read the book of Revelation as any other book, like you open up a newspaper, you open up a magazine, you open up a novel, and you read it just like you read any other book, I believe you'll come to find that this is one of the easier books to understand. So today, the goal of my sermon is not to get boggled down with some of the details in some of the passages, but it is just to give you a survey of this entire book. And and I want you to understand this, that I believe the message of this book can be summarized with four words. The King is coming. The King is coming. And so if I could label anything as a sermon title today, it's those four words, the King is coming. Whether you want to accept it or, or not, we understand that the Bible reveals that Jesus Christ is the King and he is coming back as he said he was. So this book of the Bible is a book that is, that is unveiling the truth of Jesus' return. And if you have your Bible there, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Here we see that John is writing by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he, and he labels this book into three sections. He does it himself by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse number 19, it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So we see three sections of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the past. Chapter 2 and 3 is the present. And chapters 4 through 22 is the future. Chapter one is the past. Chapter two and three is the present. And chapters four all the way to chapter 22 is the future. So will you come with me as we begin to embark on this great journey? And I found it interesting that this is the only book out of the 66 books in the canon of scripture that gives a special blessing at the very beginning and ending for those who read and obey and guard and keep the words of this prophecy. We see that that as we come to chapter 1, this is the beginning of the ending. Looking back at what, what was taking place in the past, we see that, that this book is not Revelations, by the way, plural. It is revelation singular. And we see that really the title could be called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The very first words... Of the book. And we see that in verse number three that, that John is receiving a message from the Holy Spirit, and he says that that all those who read this book, all those who keep the words in this book, and all those who hear the words in this book, are gonna be blessed. So do you want a blessing? Well, do not neglect this book in your personal devotional life, and we should not ne- neglect this book as a church family. And then we see the writer is revealing himself. The human penman is John the Apostle. And we understand that John the Apostle, in the time that he was writing this book, he was on the island of Patmos. And this was an island that was that was specifically designed for him to be exiled to. That is, the people in the Asian minor territories and the culture that he lived in were sick of the message that he had to offer. And he was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came and lived, that Jesus died, Jesus rose for, for, again from the grave, and that he is coming back again. And they were disgusted of his message. Can they exile him there? And we see that throughout the library of time, Satan has done his very best to silence the messengers of the word of God. And there's times that that he will silence them by, by not giving them a voice any longer. Silence them by exiling them so they will have nobody to speak to. And silencing them by taking their life. But I want you to understand this, that no matter the efforts of Satan trying to silence the messengers of God's word, Satan will never, ever, ever be able to silence the message of God's word. And Satan will never be able to silence the message that is being revealed here in Revelation, and that is the king is coming. And we see he's writing to a group of seven churches specifically in the Asia Minor Territory. That is the modern-day Turkey. And in chapter 1, we see that, that, that he begins to greet these churches in verses 4 through 8. And then he begins, God gives him a vision in verse number 9 and he begins to receive a vision about the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, if you will, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the, the greatest figure of all time, Jesus Christ. And we see that in the midst of this vision, that there are seven stars and there are seven candlesticks. And in verse number 20, if you would like to look at that verse, the Bible says, "...the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And unto the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are are the seven churches." I find it interesting that throughout the book of Revelation... The number seven is emphasized in a great way. There are seven churches mentioned in chapter two and three. There are seven seals that we will begin to unpack later on. There are seven trumpets that will be blown. And then there are seven bowls of judgments or vials of judgment, as the King James says, that will be unleashed upon this world. Chapter one is all about the past. But now let's look at chapters two and three. I believe chapter 2 and 3 is all about the present. Now, there's seven churches that are mentioned here. All seven of these churches literally existed back in the time period that John was writing. And he had a message from God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ to give to these specific bodies of believers in the territory of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. But I want you to understand this, that as we study these churches here, all seven of them represent the seven types of churches throughout the church age. And as we begin to understand these seven churches, we will see that God has a message and a warning and a cautioning um, word for all of the churches throughout the time period of the church age. And we look at the first one found in chapter 2. That is the church of Ephesus. In verses 1 through 7, this church represents the church that is orthodox in doctrine, but cold in love. This church, the real church of Ephesus, was a church that, was, that, had every, that, that knew everything about theology. I mean, could tell you everything about every doctrine from Genesis all the way to Revelation, if you will. Everything about the Old Testament and everything that they knew of the New Testament of that day, they could teach you. But there was one thing, they were strong in doctrine, but weak in love. And we see that they were mighty in their belief system and theology, but they were weak in their practical living out the theology that is loving God. And because they were cold in loving God, they were also cold in loving people. And today is a message for all of us. That today we can look at churches today who, who have every doctrinal T crossed and every doctrinal I dotted, but they do not have love. Then in chapter 2, we see in verses 8 through 11, a second church. That is the church of Smyrna. This church represents a church that suffers persecution. Throughout history, there have always been churches. There's always been groups of believers who were persecuted greatly because they named the name of Jesus Christ. And we see that this church, back in the early church, Smyrna, they suffered greatly for the name of Christ. And we could... List churches today in China, churches today in India, churches today in Africa, churches today in the Middle East who who are suffering greatly right now because they believe the Bible and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Time doesn't allow us to do that. But this is a message warning us that throughout the church, that is, from the day Jesus ascended up to glory and the birth of the church of the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church takes place, there will always be a group of people that will be greatly persecuted for the name of Christ. And then the, the third church mentioned in chapter 2 is the church of Pergamum or the church of Pergamus. And in verses 12 through 17, this is a church that represents the church that is married to the world. That is a church that is married to the world. That instead of being fully devoted to God's word and Jesus Christ, they are fully devoted to pleasing not God, but the world. We are called, we are in this world but we are not of this world but this church represents a church that is in the world and of the world a church that is not separated from the world and living a life that is well pleasing to God and as we look in our age and culture today we see that 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 many churches not just in America but all across the globe are not married to to Jesus Christ the groom but married to the world and the God of this world Satan we see here that we are either the household of faith or the synagogue of Satan. And it would be a horrible day for Jesus Christ to set foot into a congregation who call themselves Christians and to just simply name them the synagogue of Satan. The fourth church mentioned in chapter 2 is the church of Thyatira in verses 18-29. And this church represents the church that tolerates sin. This church represents the church throughout all periods of the church age of churches that will always exist that tolerate sin, that do not address sin from the pulpit, that do not try to to preach holiness, that do not try to name sin, sin as the word of God calls it, but will sweep sin underneath the rug and overlook it and not address it when it comes up into the body of believers. And then we see In chapter 3, three more churches mentioned. The fifth church is in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, and that is the church of Sardis. And this is a church that many churches today could classify themselves in. And that is the church that is dead. And I'm not talking about physically dead, although I want you to understand this, that all seven of these churches are now physically dead. That is... They do not exist anymore. And perhaps a local church is not meant and designed to last forever, that they give birth to other churches, and when that church is gone, then the new church that they birthed lives out the message of the gospel. But this is not what it means. This means that the church is spiritually dead. And perhaps that when we grow cold to God's word and the loving God and and, and the church that is purified and through persecution, and a church that, that is when a church is married to the world and tolerates sin, then the next step is that the church will become dead spiritually. There will no longer be life because they will no longer emphasize God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Bible says that God's word is alive. The King James says it is quick and, and powerful. It is alive and active in our age today. And through God's word, we get life. And through the gospel, he breathes life into a dead soul. But this church is dead the Church of Philadelphia. I find it interesting, out of the six of the seven churches mentioned in these chapters, six of them are rebuked for some way, shape, or form, but the Church of Philadelphia is the one and only church that is not reproved or rebuked for something going in, and this represents the church that is faithful. There will always be a remnant of God's people throughout every course of time, throughout every generation, throughout every decade, throughout every every century and millennium that stays true to the course of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may God help us to continue to laying hold on the truth of the word of God and proclaiming his message. But Then we come to the final church that is mentioned in chapter 3. And that is the church of Laodicea. This church is unlike the six that preceded it. This church is a church that represents the church that is apostate. A church that that has received the full revelation of Jesus Christ and God's word. That is, they were taught the very essentials of biblical Christianity, and they came to a point in their life where they rejected the fundamental tenets and the fundamental doctrines of the word of God. Perhaps we're seeing that today in our age. In fact, many churches of America, I guess we could classify as the pastate church, where they, they know what God's word says, but they are cutting out pieces of the word of God to fit their own philosophy and their made-up theology. Today, we see that, that chapter one is all about the past, but chapter two and three is all about the present, and we see that, that each one of these churches represents the seven types of churches throughout the church age. And that leads us to the third section of the book chapters 4 through 22, and that is dealing with the future. That is everything from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22 have not taken place yet, and they are still yet to come. And by the way, many people ask where the rapture takes place, but but didn't you read it in the white lines there between verse 22 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4? Didn't you read it there? (laughs) Can't you see it there? (laughs) I want you to understand this, that the term church is mentioned in verse 22 of chapter 3. And the church is not mentioned again until being referenced in chapter 19 as the armies that come back and the return to reign with Christ and the bride in the millennial kingdom. And then in chapter 20 is mentioned there. We see that from chapters 4, really all the way to, to chapter number 19, that the church is no longer to be found. That is the church that we know of today. And I, I I'm not going to spend too much time Speaking about the rapture here, but I will come back, and I will have a special sermon devoted to the rapture and, and laying out all the different views. But I want you to understand this. We hold to what is called the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. That is the, church, that is, the church is going to be taken up, as Paul said in Thessalonians, and as Paul said in Corinthians, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and there we will we'll ever be with him. And in that moment is when chapter 4, we believe, begins. Now, we see a great transition here. The first three chapters are unique and different than the last several. And we see that in this vision that, that John receives. Now, whether he is, is seeing this vision just like right here on this moment or, or he is literally taken up to heaven, you know, our minds can only speculate. But what we know is God is giving John a vision of things to come in the future. And in chapter 4, we see that, that this vision takes him to heaven. And in chapter four, he receives a vision of the throne of God, and understand this: that heaven is all about God's throne and all about worshiping the God on that throne. That's all heaven's going to be. <laughs> you know, as much as, as we like to talk about how you know we're going to be conversation, we're going to have conversations with our loved ones and blah 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 blah, and all that might be it might transpire. But the main thing of heaven is worshiping the one true God, Jesus Christ and seeing him on his exalted throne. And in chapter one, we see John is caught up to heaven. Excuse me, chapter four, verse number one, he's caught up to heaven. In verses two and three, we see him seeing God, the creator, on his throne. There's I guess four groups of people mentioned in this chapter. We see, of course, John is mentioned. Then God Almighty is mentioned. Then the 24 elders is mentioned in verse number four. And it's interesting, in verse number five, the Bible says that, that out of this throne, there's flashes of lightnings, there's flashes of thunderings, and there's flashes of voices. Wow, what a mighty throne that is. And then, by the way... We're not going to get into the details of who exactly the 24 elders are, but, but we'll get to that later. But today, we understand there's 24 elders here, and then there, there's these beings, other beings in verses 6 through 11. These four living creatures. In verse number 7, it says there's one who's like a lion. There's a second that's like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the Bible says that that each of these beasts, they had six wings and they had many eyes. And the Bible says that they did not rest day nor night. And they said these words, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And then we see the 24 elders are falling down before the throne in verse number 10, and they are saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Understand that that in verse number 5, there's a plural term to the spirits of God. And understand this that all this simply is, is referring to. It's going back to the book of Isaiah when the prophet Isaiah emphasized the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And here this, this term, spirits of God, is just a reference to the Holy Spirit. So whenever you see the spirits mentioned throughout the book of Revelation, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. Chapter five, we move forward in this vision that God gave to John. He is, he is in heaven now and he's seeing all these beings worship God, but then he sees a sealed scroll. And it's very interesting in the Roman culture, they used a the scroll to be a title deed. And, and the Roman law required seven seals in this scroll so it could not be fabricated and copied. And all it just simply is referring to here is that, that there is one being who is worthy to open this seal. And that is Jesus Christ, God the Son. And so he unseals it one seal at a time. And we see chapter 5 is devoted to all of this. And we see in this chapter, this seal just kind of represents the last will and testament of Almighty God. And understand this, God's will will be done as he said it was. And the last testament of God will come to pass because his word said it would. Chapter 6 we see that six of the seven seals are broken, and they are opened. And we'll just rapidly go through these. In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 6, we see seal number 1, and it's a seal that represents peace. And as you begin to study these verses, we see that it is a representation of how the Antichrist, and by the way, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we hear on the History Channel and all other places. And we see that here, that that this verse number two is emphasizing how a, a conqueror will come and will bring peace to this earth, but it will be a falsified peace. And then after this peace, the Bible says the second seal is broken. And if there is no peace, absent of peace means there will always be war. And so seal number two represents war in verses three through four. Wherever there's war, by the way, there's always going to be the next seal. Famine in verses five and six, we see the third seal is undone, and famine comes. If there is no peace, there will always be war, and wherever there's war, there will always be famine. And wherever there's war and famine, the next seal brings death. Verses seven and eight speak about death, and I want you to understand this I'm not trying to be Mormon, I'm not trying to be sad. But in the tribulational period, death will be something that people will wish for. And some will not be able to get it. Then seal five represents the cry of the martyrs. In fact, look at verse number 10. The Bible says they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And then seal six of chapter six is undone. And this seal is unlike the others. Verses 12 through 17, we see when this seal is opened or broken, an earthquake comes, the sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, and mountains and islands will disappear. And in fact, there have been some to suggest that this will be a beginning of a series of earthquakes that will transpire throughout the book of Revelation. And we see that Jesus spoke about this. He spoke about these things in the Sermon, uh, not his Sermon on the Mount, but his Sermon on the Olivet Discourse. And those things are the, the birth pains of the return. That is, that's what it's referring to. These events that are taking place here, those are the birth pains of the coming of Christ. And so when we see these things take place, we know that the coming of Christ is drawing nigh. That leads us to chapter 7. Could you imagine receiving this vision? <laughs> Talk about heavy stuff. Well, God gives John kind of an interlude break in chapter 7. And he, he reveals to him all, this, all these seals that are going to take place and the utter turmoil that's going to transpire in this earth. And then in chapter 7, he gives hope to John. And he gives hope to all of us and to those that are living in that time. And they give this chapter, chapter 7, gives us the idea that in the midst of God's judgment and wrath being poured out upon the world, that he always brings his love and mercy and grace to humanity. And we see that being transpired through 144,000 individuals, 12,000 people of the 12 different tribes, minus the tribe of Dan. Dan is not mentioned here because he was grossly involved in idolatry, and we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 29, but he will be included in the kingdom layout, as Ezekiel mentioned in chapter 48. But we see 12,000 people from each tribe. These will be God's evangelist servants that will go out and share the good news of of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse number nine, a great multitude of hosts will come to know Christ as Savior. So in the midst of God pouring out his judgment, we will literally see the greatest revival our world has ever seen of people coming to know Christ as Savior or one of the greatest. And then we see in chapter eight, The beginning of these trumpets and the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal is open in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, we see that it is the terrible plagues of the seven trumpets which are even more horrible than the first six seals. In verses 3 through 6, we see that the prayers of the saints are going up. And then in these in these verses here, uh, uh, verses 7 through 12, we see these trumpets that are blown by these angels. Trumpet number one is hail, fire, and blood will rain down on the earth and wipe out one-third of all plant life. And then trumpet number two is going to be blown. And this will be a burning mountain falls into the sea and turns one-third of the ocean into blood. And one-third of all sea life dies. Trumpet number three is blown. And it's a star that's called Wormwood will poison one-third of all the freshwater supply in the globe. Trumpet number four is blown. And then that means that one-third of the moon, one-third of the stars, and one-third of the sun will darken. And we see in verse number 12, commentators have, have just elaborated here that, that, that because of the sun darkening and the moon darkening and the stars being darkened, it will cause a major shift on this globe and the cycle of, of a daily cycle will be changed. And as the details in chapter number 8, verse number 12, mentions that, that some commentators believe that, that it is very possible that the 24-hour day will be shifted to a 16-hour day or something similar. That is what we know of a day will no longer be the same once this takes place. And then, as we could rightly say, the angel that is going to be flying through the midst of all of heaven will be saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe! And woe! To the inhabitants of the earth. And that leads us to chapter 9. And by the way, these three woes represents the last three trumpet sounds. Woe number one is trumpet five. Woe number two is trumpet six. And woe number three is trumpet number seven. That is what these trumpets are about to to unleash It's worse than everything that has transpired so far again. Trumpet five in chapter nine in verses one through 11, it just blows my mind. This is is literally going to be the worst days of humanity. I know you might think that the Holocaust in the 30s and the 40s were horrible, but it was just that was just a little taste, bud of what's going to take place once this transpires. Every horrible event that you can think about throughout history since mankind has existed, you combine all of them, and all of them combined will not compare to what's about to take place in Chapter Nine. Chapter Nine, when this trumpet, the fifth trumpet, is blown, demon locusts will with human faces and long hair and lion's teeth and the power of the scorpion sting will plague this world and sting non-believers for five months. And these non-believers who are tormented by, by these demonic spirits, they will be pleading and asking for death, but they will not be able to find it. Trumpet number six is blown. Four angels that are fallen are released and will wipe out people with sulfur and fire pouring out of their mouths, and they will manage to wipe away one-third of the population of mankind at that time. Chapter number 10 is devoted to the little scroll being opened. And we won't spend too much time here in chapter 10. Let's look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, we see another breath of fresh air by God. Not only did he give 144,000 people to come and be evangelists, but he brings two witnesses. I'm not going to get into too much detail, but I'll share with you why later on. But I believe these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. And these two witnesses are out proclaiming God's word and, and proclaiming it in such a way that, that, man, these people on this earth hated the message. They were very hostile towards these witnesses. And finally, the witnesses die, and they, they, there was great rejoicing of that day. And in fact, I I can just imagine they're going to have a holiday devoted to celebrating the death of these two witnesses and they're going to pass out gifts. And then just imagine the news media coming in the news, whatever the the outlets will be, whether it's radio or television or whatever will be invented until then. We see that these people will will be talking about, hey, these witnesses have been dead for three and a half days and then all of a sudden life is brought back to these witnesses and they will rise from the dead. And then they will ascend up to glory. And we see After that takes place, in verses 15 and 19, the final trumpet will sound. And this final trumpet will emphasize these four words. The end has come. Another break from the plagues and unto the seven bowls of judgment. Twenty-four elders in heaven declare it's time to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple in heaven is opened. and then featuring the Ark of the Covenant here in the last part of chapter 11. And that moves us to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is devoted to three characters. Number one, the woman. Number two, the child. And number three, the dragon. The woman, we believe, represents Israel. The child represents Jesus Christ. And then the dragon represents Satan. And we see in, cha- in chapter number 12, verses 7 through 12, that war is raging in heaven between Michael and his angels and, and the dragon or Satan and his angels. And the Bible tells us that, that Michael will prevail and this great dragon was cast down to the earth who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out of the earth out into the earth, excuse me, and his angels were cast out with him. So remember back in the book of Job when Satan went up to to the place where he could have a conversation with God, well, in this moment Satan and his demonic spirits will have no longer access to that place. And there all of his energy will be devoted to the people of this earth raging havoc. And then in verse 13 through 17 of chapter 12, we see the woman's flight to the desert. This this goes back and corresponds most likely to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 when he says, when you see these things take place, run to the mountains. And then chapter 13, the infamous chapter of the mark of the beast. We see this chapter is devoted to two characters, two beasts. The first beast is the Antichrist, and the second beast is the false prophet. The Antichrist represents how he will come and politically be charged to rule this world. And the false prophet will be re- religiously charged They are to direct people to worship the one and only Antichrist. In chapter number 13, we see the rise of, of a one-world government. And yes, I am a conspiracy theorist. Because the Bible says that there is a great conspiracy of Satan, raging war against God, over trying to overthrow his plan. And whether you, whatever you want to call me, you call me. But there will one day be a one-world government. There will one day be a one-world economy. And there will one day be a one-world religion. And it's all going to take place right here in this time period in the book of Revelation. And here there will be a mark of the beast. On the forehead and the right hand and whatever that is. A lot of people have have given a lot of theories about what it is. But whatever it is, you will not be able to buy or sell unless you receive that mark. And the Bible says those who receive that mark will not be part of the family of God. And then chapter 14. We see the lamb and his followers are the theme. And the first five verses mention again the 144,000 that were mentioned previously. We see here in verses six through seven that an angel goes around uh, and flies in the midst of heaven. And, and the Bible says, having the ever go- everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred, and to tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. In this moment, I believe that it corresponds to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus said that that until the message of the gospel is preached until the the entire world, then the end will come. And I believe that is the moment right here when the message of the gospel, of the everlasting gospel in Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation is declared to all the world by this one angel. Then we see the end is going to finally come. In chapter 14, verse 8, we see the mentioning of the fall of Babylon. In verses 9 through 12, we see the doom of the beast uh, who worshiped the beast. And then we see in verse number 13, the blessed dead. And then in verses 14 through 16, we see the harvest of the earth. And then in the last part, we see the grapes from the earth's vine. And then that brings us to chapters 15 and 16, who are kind of brought together in one. And that is, this: these two chapters represent the seven bold judgments of God's wrath. And here's where God is going to unleash his righteous indignation upon this world. Imagine, the King James uses the term vials, but all it simply means is bowls. So imagine seven bowls. Like, you know, you're going to your kitchen and you get the biggest bowl for your bowl of cereal. Imagine seven of those bowls. And in those bowls, when it's poured out, it is an aspect of God's judgment being poured out upon this world. And so in chapter 15, we see in the first few verses here that there's a song of the victors. And then the first eight verses is dealing with the wrath of God, emphasizing God's wrath. And then chapter 16 brings us to the seven bold judgments. And I'll just go through these. Verse 2, The first bold judgment is poured out on the earth and causes those who have the mark of the beast to be covered with ulcerated sores. Verse 3, The second bowl judgment is poured out upon the sea and it turns to blood. Verses four through seven, the third bowl judgment is poured out upon the rivers and fountains of water, turning them to blood also. Verses eight through nine, the fourth bowl judgment is intensifying the heat of the sun and will burn men with fire. Verses 10 and 11 is the fifth bowl. And this fifth bowl judgment is poured out upon the throne of the beast, turning his kingdom into darkness. And in these two verses here, the Bible says that there will be great weeping and wailing because they will be in great anguish because they cannot see. Have you ever been in a cave and you turn the lights off and you cannot see? Well, imagine the entire world of where the Antichrist is reigning will be covered in darkness. Then verses 12 through 6. The sixth bowl judgment is drying up the river Euphrates. And then verses 17 through 21, the seventh bowl judgment is poured out into the air with the pounding of 100-pound hailstones and the greatest earthquake in all history. And finally, Babylon falls. This, This right here, if you could just imagine all of the major earthquakes of the world They don't compare to this one. This earthquake will be unlike any other earthquake our world has ever seen. And then these gigantic hailstones. Imagine a hundred pound hailstone coming down. Imagine what destruction it will have upon this world. Chapter 17 is devoted to Babylon and the great prostitute. Really, chapter 17 and 18, most people would believe that, that these two chapters are kind of going back and kind of bringing in some details of these, these events that are taking place in chapters 15 and 17. But so we see in chapter 17, Babylon, the great prostitute. Then in chapter 18, the fall of Babylon. And then in chapter 19, it begins with, with a lot of praise being released in heaven, uh, saying Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Speaking about how he is the omnipotent one and he is the one who reigns. And let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. And here, it mentions a few other things here, but, but this chapter is really devoted to the destruction of the beast, that is the Antichrist, and his false prophet. And we'll see that they will be thrown into the lake of fire, mentioned in verse 20 and verse 21. At this moment, between verse 21 of chapter 19 and verse number 20, uh, excuse me, verse number 1 of chapter 20, during this season, there will the event of the Battle of Armageddon will take place. The Antichrist will be destroyed. His army will be overthrown by the Word of God and all those who oppose God. And then in that moment, Jesus Christ, as Matthew 24 says, Jesus said himself, in that moment he will gather the elect, that is all the believers who are alive and survive this great tribulational period. He will gather all of them together and establish his millennial kingdom. For 1,000 years, by the way, 1,000 is mentioned six different times in chapter 20, and the only logical and theological conclusion is that this is a literal 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. There's really no other interpretation. That is, if you Read the Bible or the book of Revelation as any other book you'd read in the Bible, as it says. And so we see in this millennial kingdom, Satan will be bound. And for 1,000 years, just hear me out now, 1,000 years, most likely the earth will be restored to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. And for 1,000 years, man will not be tempted by Satan. So imagine what the mind of man can invent and accomplish and do without The energy and efforts of Satan tempting them to stray from the word of God. It'll be glorious. There Jesus will will reign with his rod and scepter of righteousness on his throne of glory. And they're issuing his decrees of his laws of his word to this world. And there will be great peace. Finally, the world will see peace. After the greatest war that was ever raged and warred, Peace will be given only through Jesus Christ. But this season of the millennial kingdom will also reveal the tendency of man's heart to run far from God. Because at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loose for one short season. And there will sway a host of those people. I'm talking about for 1,000 years. Many generations who have lived and who have seen Jesus Christ face to face ruling as king, they will turn from him and follow the ways of Satan. Then Satan will be taken and cast into the lake of fire. And the great white throne judgment will take place. And there the books will be opened the book of life will be opened, and all those names who are not found in the book of life will experience the second death in the lake of fire. And then we see chapter 21 and 22. It's all about a new heaven, all about a new earth, where I guess you could say this earth and the new heaven, outer space, everything that we know of will be remodeled by the great creator and designer himself, Jesus Christ. And we see that chapter 21 is just a description about how glorious and how amazing and how awesome it will be to be in the presence of Almighty God for all eternity. And in verse number 4, it really summarizes the chapter, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, The Bible says there will be no more death. The Bible says there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. The Bible says for the former things are passed away. And then chapter 22. It's more about this glorious place called heaven, but a final cautioning and warning to those who tamper with the word of God. A warning to those who add are those who take away from God's word. Emphasizing, of course, the immediate context is referring to the book of Revelation. But we know that back in the book of Deuteronomy, a couple times it's mentioned about not adding to and not taking away. And then in the book of Proverbs, in the very middle portion, in the poetical books there of our canon of Scripture, where the Bible speaks about not adding to and not taking away from God's word. So really, really, there's a great warning throughout all of Scripture about taking away and adding to God's word so let us not remove any word. Let us not add any word to what God's word already has said. But then, the other final warning is in verse 17 of chapter 22. It's one word. Come. It says, In the spirit and the bride say come, and let him that heareth say come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let let him take the water of life freely. And then, the final prayer, John prays. Can you imagine seeing all this and trying to describe in his in his time period in the, in the in like the first century of the church? Imagine receiving all of these visions and seeing all this great technology and trying to describe it all. And then he says at the very final prayer, "Even so, come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all." Amen. You know, earlier in the Book of Revelation, it, it started with. In verse number three, it said these words, for the time is at hand. So I know you're asking yourself a question that I've asked as I've been studying this book recently. What does this book have to do with me? Well, here's the message. The king is coming. So it's time to prepare for his coming. And to warn all those we can that Jesus is coming and he's not coming back with, as a little infant in a manger in Bethlehem. But he's coming back as a reigning sovereign king to bring judgment to this world unlike any judgment that our world has ever seen. The king is coming. Will you be ready? And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you, and have a great week.